0: In Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Tombs of Atuan*, one of the characters who were introduced to rather early on, who is of the same age as the main character, Arha, or Tenar, is this girl, Pentha. And she's, in some respects, on a similar track, although there's some very important differences, as Arha is. Arha is the reincarnation of the priestess of the unnamed, ones of Atuan, right? And Pentha has been given to the religious establishment. She's going to be in the Temple of the God Kings. So there's been, for both of them, a appropriation from their family life. They live together in a common area and they share a lot of experiences in common. Although, as we're gonna see, there are some things where they are very, very different, not just because of their characters, but also because of what happens to them. We encounter her first as a sort of playmate or explorer with young Arha. She doesn't have, you could say, the force of character. She's called gentle at one point. She recognizes a certain passivity in herself. And this shows up in the very first vignette that we have where Pentha says, oh, you know, we've got to get back. It's time to leave. And Arya says, no, no, let's stick around. And who gets punished? Poor little Pentha. But there's an important role to her in this story. Through her, Arha learns, as Le Guin will put it, the existence of unfaith. And I think that's an interesting phrase to use right there. It's not the existence of non-faith, of a lack of faith, of the contrary to faith, but something different. And this is expressed through the different desires and the different perspectives that Pentha brings into the story in part by communicating them in conversation with Arha. So there's a lot of really important stuff happening in here and and we can chart out this involvement by looking at several different places where she comes up in the story. She doesn't get an awful lot of space, but she gets some. So the first one is in chapter two, where they are playing around on the wall. Arha said, come on and led the other girl down the hill around out of sight of the big house to the wall. Now they sat on top of it 10 feet up, their bare legs dangling on the outside, looking over the flat plains that went on and on to the east and north. And then they have a conversation that we'll come back to in a moment. But what happens there? Pentha smiled. She was a soft, comfortable looking girl. And she talks about being by the sea. They play around, the eunuch Manon comes around and they make fun of him, right? And then a little bit later, Pentha says, we ought to go back, and says, the weaving mistress might tell Thar, soon it'll be time for the nine chance. Arha says, I'm staying here, you stay too. They won't punish you, but they will punish me, said Pentha in her mild way. Arha did not reply. Pentha sighed and stayed. And she does indeed get punished. She gets told to strip and scourged with a whip that actually draws some blood. Arha doesn't get punished, so this is sort of emblematic of the different in their relationship. And you can tell that Arha is a much more forceful person. Pentha kind of goes along with things. We'll come back to the discourse that they have in Chapter 2. In Chapter 4, Pentha is bringing apples to Arha. And at first, she has to kind of go through this make-believe, mumming, right? She pretends like she's just wandering around. One morning, Pentha came to see her from the porch. Arha saw her approach the small house with a careless Purposeless air, as if she just happened to be wandering that way. If Arha had not spoken, she would not have come up the steps. But Arha was lonely and spoke. Pentha made the deep bow required of all who approached the priestess of the tombs. Then plopped down on the steps below Arha and made a noise like poof. She'd gotten quite tall and plump. Anything she did turned her cherry pink. She was pink now from walking, and she gives Arha these apples. She also, and I won't go through the entire story here, but she recounts this very funny story about things happening you know one thing leading to another and there's you know caricatures and pretending to to have somebody else's voice involved in it and they have a great laugh together and this is pentha bringing her not just apples but a kind of joy We also see Pentha being talked about in the aftermath of the earthquake in chapter 11 where Arha is reflecting on what's going on and she says, what will they say? What will they think? Poor Pentha. She might have to become the high priestess of the God King now. And it was always she who wanted to run away, not I. Maybe now she'll run away. Tenor smiled, there was a joy in her that no thought nor dread could darken that same joy that had risen in her, waking in the golden light. So we don't know actually what happens to Pentha in this story. What we do know is that there is an acceptance, but also a rejection of the religious establishment and the religious path that is being set out for her. And what we know about Pentha's desires is that she didn't choose the path that she has been placed on any more than Arhat did. And this is, uh, quite important here. So we find that, um, why is Pentha there? Well, her family gave her, essentially, to the establishment, and, and that's what she's stuck with. But she wants to, to live. She wants to, to see, to do, to enjoy things. She says at one point, what I really like the most is eating. You know, and that's a very basic function for us human beings, something that we ideally can all take pleasure in. She says, uh, you're strong. I wish I were strong. I just like eating, though. And uh, earlier on in chapter two, Penthes says, I'd like to see the sea. And Arha says, what for? And Penthes says, I don't know what for. i just like to see something different. It's always the same here. Nothing happens. And then Arha says, all that happens everywhere begins here. Oh, I know but I'd just like to see some of it happening. So there is a recognition on Pentha's part that, okay, all this religious stuff, there's something to it, but it doesn't really fit me I, I can't buy into it as something that i would have a connection with and a little bit later we find this being discussed penthes says i was the sixth girl my mother and father had they couldn't bring up so many and marry them all off so they brought me to the god king's temple and dedicated me they had too many novices there because pretty soon they sent me on here maybe they thought i'd make a specially good priestess but they were wrong about that and are says would you rather not have been a priestess? And Penthes says, Would I rather? Of course, I'd rather marry a pig herd and live in a ditch. I'd rather anything than stay buried alive here all my born days with a mess of women in a perishing old desert where nobody ever comes. But there's no good wishing about it because I've been consecrated now. And I'm stuck with it. Now notice the next thing that she says, though. I do hope in my next life I'm a dancing girl in Awabath because I will have earned it. And so what we've got here is she wants to enjoy vitality. She wants to see new things. She actually talks about ships at one time that she saw sailing and they were something new because they weren't just cargish ships. So that that's what Pentha is doing, and she's stuck in this religious life that isn't particularly appealing. And here is where Arha first encounters what Le Guin in the next chapter, chapter five, will call the existence of unfaith expressed by her friend Pentha. So How does this work? She she asked, doesn't the temple mean anything to you? Pentha, always submissive, easily bullied, did not take alarm this time. Oh, I know your masters are very important to you, she said with an indifference that shocked Arya. That makes some sense because you're their one special servant. You weren't just consecrated, you were specially born. But look at me. Am I supposed to feel so much awe and so on about the God King? He's just a man. Even if he does live in Awabath in a palace 10 miles around with gold roofs, He's about 50 years old and he's bald. You can see it in the statues. I bet he has to cut his toenails just like any other man. I know perfectly well he's a god, but I think he's going to be much more godlier after he's dead. And so, this is kind of shocking to Arha. Well, you don't you don't take the religion seriously. And notice that Pentha does and doesn't. She's willing to see things as they are and still acknowledge, well, people think this is quite important. Arha says to her then, well, what about the old powers that I serve, right? And... Arha agreed with Pentha. She, secretly, she'd come to consider the self styled divine emperors of Kargad as upstarts, false gods, trying to filch the worship due to the true and everlasting powers. But there was something underneath Pentha's words with which she didn't agree, something wholly new to her, frightening to her. She had not realized how very different people were, how differently they saw life. She felt as if she'd looked up and suddenly seen a whole new planet hanging huge and populous right outside the window, one in which the 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 gods did not matter. She was scared by the solidity of Pentha's unfaith. And she strikes out. Now notice, before we look at the strikes out, what's going on there? Arha is being shocked out of a kind of, we could call it dogmatism about the world, assuming that everybody buys into what you believe in, what you've been brought up to believe in. And so this is a, a very important turning point. Arha then says to her, that's true. My masters have been dead a long time. They were never men. Do you know, Pentha, I could call you into the service of the tombs. She spoke pleasantly as as if offering her friend a better choice. The pink went right out of Pentha's cheeks. Yes, you could, but I'm not the sort that would be good at that. Why? I am afraid of the dark. Arha made a little sound of scorn, but she was pleased she'd made her point. Pentha might disbelieve in the gods, but she feared the unnameable powers of the dark, as did every mortal soul. So Pentha doesn't have complete unfaith, but... What she has isn't really faith, it's more fear than belief or commitment or anything like that. This is incredibly important for Arha because it helps her recognize what is going on in the very next chapter where she is dealing with Kassel. Right? We find out that since Arha had learned from Gentle Pentha of the existence of unfaith and had accepted it as a reality, even though it frightened her, she'd been able to look at Castle more and more steadily and to understand her. Castle had no true worship in her heart of the nameless ones or of the gods. She held nothing sacred but power. So this arms Arha against this essentially malevolent other priestess who has much more at her disposal than Arha does. So Pentha provides her with something that winds up being very helpful with her without even meaning to, and that's that's kind of the way of Pentha. We don't know what ends up happening to her, in the book at least. Is Pentha going to be happy or unhappy? She seems to be able to be more or less content, even though she's got longings that can't be easily satisfied in the religious life life that she has, but perhaps she'll run away. We don't really know, but we do know that she's important to the story. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.